Welcome to the Left MN Radio Hour, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. I'm Aaron Clems with co-host Tony Petrangelo, and on today's big show, we talk about the news of the week, legislative deadlines and legislation, and we interview St. Thomas University law professor Mark Osler about civil discourse, guns, and kittens. Don't worry, it'll all make sense later. And, and kittens. All right, come back for the kitties. But first... I don't know if kittens are as effective on the radio as they are. I know. It, it's, you know they have kitten... Well, they have the, the cat, the cat um, film festival they're going to have at the State Fair this year. Yes. You know, but... We'll have, to, we'll have to go to the website to see the kittens, or, or Prince. We'll get there in a second. Uh, but first, the weekly wrap. This week, Tony received an unmarked package that contained a very special Ovaltine decoder ring. And when he enters the first letters of each line in newspaper stories in the Star Tribune, it reveals hidden Minnesota political news stories, which he puts in the weekly wrap. So what did you find this week, Tony? Ovaltine's taking me back, man. I know. it's you know, Ovaltine, the Ovaltine, there was a radio connection with Ovaltine. Oh, yeah? They promoted that on the, oh, okay. you know, on the radio. Yes. So... You're, right. you're listening. You're listening on the radio right now. <laughs> this show is sponsored by Ovaltine. You know. um, so <laughs> this week, uh, uh, there was actually a case of voter fraud that was found. <gasps> yes. No. Real live in the flesh voter fraud. Was it was it students voting 27 times? No, no. no. Uh, was it? Nope. Uh, it wasn't dead people voting. Wasn't dead people? Nope. It wasn't dead people. It wasn't I- illegal immigrants. Did the unions do it? Nope. It wasn't. It, well, as far as we know, it wasn't the unions. Okay. Well, well, what happened? It was, uh, and, and this happened in the primary election, not the general Somebody election. Somebody was trying to fix they the were, primary. Yes, yes, this is crazy, Uh-oh. crazy stuff. Um, it was, uh, yeah, apparently uh, uh, an 86-year-old lady with uh, Parkinson's and dementia who, sh- who forgot she had absentee voted, and then just, you know, it was a nice day on election day, so she went down to the polling place and voted again. <laughs> this is Margaret Schneider. Where is she from? Northfield or something? It's like someplace in southern Minnesota, I think. Um, but, uh, she, my favorite quote was her on the television. She's sitting there in her chair and she goes, well, when you're 86 years old, you'll forget things too, <laughs> which I thought was a great quote. <laughs> it is. Yes. Well, yeah, she voted absentee like a month before the election. So yeah, it, it's easy to forget. And, and the other side of it is that on the, on the roster, it was marked that she had voted absentee and the election judges still allowed her to vote. So, so somebody should have caught this. Someone should, and that's uh, in the article I read. Yeah, Beth Fraser, who is a friend of the Left Demand Radio Hour uh, yeah. from the Secretary of State's office, indicated that yeah, that that should have been something that was caught by the election judges. She should should never have been allowed to vote twice. So why are they charging her with a crime? I mean, this sounds like a simple mistake, right? Yeah, and there's some dispute about that as well. Like the 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 county is saying they were required by law to charge, and again, Beth Fraser from the Secretary of State's office is basically saying. Uh, yeah, not so much. Like, it's within your discretion to not charge. Um, so I'm sure there's a dispute there. Obviously, we need stricter laws to prevent this kind of voter fraud from happening in the future. Well, and that's the thing worth pointing out is, is the amendment that was on the Constitution that got uh, – the amendment to the Constitution that was voted down in November would have done nothing to prevent this. Oh, you mean photo ID wouldn't yes. have stopped this? No. As in almost every single case of voter fraud we've heard about, voter photo ID would make no difference whatsoever. Yes, exactly. Well, obviously, good on the state of Minnesota. Good on the people of Minnesota for voting it down. Uh, we've got another. Uh, we've got a new caucus. Yes. Up at the Capitol. Uh, who, who's doing this now? This is uh, this is Roger Reinert from Duluth. Yep. It's, uh, he represents the most Democratic non-metro district in the entire state. Senate District 7. Yes. Yep. And uh, Jeremy Miller from Winona, uh, District, what, 20, 21? Yeah, something like that. Um, and he represents the most Democratic district held by a Republican. 
in the entire state. So Miller really is a purple. You, if anybody was going to be a Republican in the Purple Caucus, you would expect Jeremy Miller to be in it, yes. Yeah. I guess the fact that um, the Democrat who's in it is from a very liberal district, uh, maybe it's not such a Purple Caucus, but like a blue-hued red. So what's, what's the Purple Caucus <laughs> going to do? Well, I guess they're going to push bipartisan stuff. I, I don't... They've, they're going to find common ground between Democrats and Republicans. No one's um, ever tried that before. No. No, they've, they've never... No, no groups... Uh, gee, there's never been a group called like Americans Elect. There's never been a group called Third Way. There's never been a group called uh the, all these all these groups never existed that I've tried the same thing before. I mean, I don't mean to demean it because uh, I, I like Roger Reiner. I think he's a he's a smart guy and he's a you know he he's a good politician. He's a good legislator. And, um, and from all all appearances, Jeremy Miller is one of the more reasonable Republicans in the state legislature. Indeed. Um, and one of the youngest, too. Uh, but I think one of the things that interested me is how much cover this gives Jeremy Miller for re-election and how little help it provides Roger Reinhardt of any sort when it comes to elections. And that's, I guess, what caught my eye, is that, yeah, Jeremy Miller, and he won election rather handily in a good Democratic year in a Democratic district, so I don't necessarily know if he is vulnerable or not. He seems to be a pretty capable politician. But, yeah, you're right. It provides him with a ton of cover it's a in a no-brainer for jeremy Miller in a district that's a purple district absolutely yeah. yeah um and so i guess you know i i i guess the yeah like you said what's in it for the dude you know like <laughs> what's in it for reiner <laughs> i i guess if it helps advance common sense legislation up at the capitol there could be an upside but we'll have to see who else joins the purple caucus and yes. uh what they actually get behind i mean if this continues the real issue is going to be um what is going to be their signature piece of legislation that they're going to push, uh, and that might set the tone for, for later. Uh, if they can help resolve the dispute in the election law bills, maybe that would be worth it. Yeah, maybe. That's not a bad point. Um, you're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and we're talking about the news of the week. Every week, Tony puts together some of the hidden news stories about Minnesota and Minnesota elections and puts them up on left.mn under weekly wrap. And so if you're interested in any of these stories and want to learn more, head to left.mn and click on weekly wrap. Um, uh, Norm Coleman, is he still Minnesotan now? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess he could call. I mean, he, he's he's a former senator from Minnesota, but he he was a Minnesota transplant to begin with. Yeah, and so, now he's running a dark money group that operates around the country. Yep. Norm um, Coleman, uh, the uh, head of the American Action Network, uh, announced this week that he will not seek election in Minnesota in any office or any capacity in 2014. Yes, and this is not unexpected news at all. I, I don't. I don't know that running uh, an operation like American Action Network is necessarily what one does if they're uh, laying the groundwork for elective office in the future. Or, or like Tim Pawlenty running the largest lobbying operation for the financial services industry. Yes, yes. Um, um, I mean, one thing it does is it certainly takes one of the GOP's potentially strongest uh, uh, challengers to date Norfrank and off the table in 2014. Um, and maybe he isn't potentially one of the strongest, but at least in the polling, he was just a rhino anyway. Well, maybe that's the best the best chance they have. <laughs> that might very well be true. Uh, and, and American Action Network, actually, as you pointed out in your post today, uh, our post on Friday, that is, has one of the best cycles of any of those Republican dark money groups. Yeah, they they actually spent their money pretty well. They and and I guess that you know Norm Coleman himself tends to portray himself as a moderate, and those were the candidates he tended to back, were the more moderate flavor of Republicans and not the Tea Partiers. Um, so why is Karl Rove starting this national group? It sounds like they're doing the work that the American Action Network did last time around. I mean, Because he wants some of that money 
<laughs> well, if you look at for the dude again, yeah, well, exactly. The Carl Rove's you look looking for the person who will benefit. Yes. And, well, <laughs> you know, I'm the walrus. <laughs> there you go. We might as well just break out the script and start quoting the movie. Yeah. The whole movie. <laughs> well, you know, that wouldn't be. I would pass the time pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> but I guess that kind of also leaves the last question, which is uh, about Norm Coleman, which is, well, who is left? I mean, we don't even have. A bench from which to draw on, unless Glenn, unless Glenn Gruenhagen is planning on running for Senate. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess so. I guess you know, uh, it'll be a state legislator or a senator of some sort. I would guess. I don't think there's going to be too many people sitting on the sidelines. I, they were doing that last last cycle uh, when Amy was up, and yeah. no, nobody's running statewide in 2016. So this is a lot of people's last shot for another four years. That's true. And if Amy runs again. <laughs> <laughs> Could be their last shot for a while. Yep. So, um, you know, I, I think whoever has any aspirations for higher office, if they're a Republican, they're going to take a shot at this cycle at one of those two races. So I don't suspect there'll be any shortage of candidates. Yeah, I, I would expect to see David Han uh, running for governor. Oh, oh yeah, he's, he's already he's already launched his own draft hand movement. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Pete Hegstrom as the nominee for the Senate. Hegseth? Hegseth, thank you. There you go. Um, uh, that's just That's just me guessing. Several years in advance. Yeah, I don't know what kind of cachet Hegseth has. I, I don't know what his path to nomination is. I think dark horses have good chances this year in the Republican <laughs> Party, though. Uh, the item that I think is probably getting the most momentum at the Capitol and is starting to really get rolling is marriage equality. Um, we have a couple of hearings this week, and it's important. We'll cover this in the next segment, too, but uh, we've got some deadlines coming up the legislature. Things have to get done by March 15th and March 22nd in order to be live issues and we now have two bills, one in the House, one in the Senate. Um, and this week we have hearings and a couple of committee hearings. Committees, what are they? What are they? The Senate, Judiciary, and House and the, Civil the Law. House Civil, yeah. Yep. And so there's a piece in, uh, in the Associated Press, uh, I believe, that was talking about uh, on the, in the House Civil Law Committee, there's, what, nine out of the 17 members have said that they'll vote for it, which is enough to pass it. Yep. And in the Senate, there was four out of the eight members have said they'll vote for it. And, and the fifth is? And the fifth, the fifth member has said that she's in favor of it, but she's uncomfortable with how quickly the issue is moving. Yeah. And that's our very own Columbia Heights State yeah. Senator Barb Goodwin. Tony and I both live in Senate District 41, uh, and uh, we both feel strongly about this issue. And I'm, I'm planning on letting Senator Goodwin know that I hope that she'll vote yes. I, I assume you're going to do the same thing, Tony. I hope you vote yes, Barb. Yeah, let's do it right now. We hope you vote yes. Uh, Senator Goodwin, as your constituents, we are very comfortable with the pace that this is going at, and we encourage you to embrace change. In fact, we'd like it to go faster. Yes. Uh, faster faster is better. Um, but that means that we're setting up a situation where if it gets through the House Civil Law Committee, it's live, and if it gets through the second second hurdle um, of the Senate Judiciary Committee, it is a live issue for the rest of the session. Um, and then can be brought up on the House and Senate floors at any point, uh, which would then be exactly where they want it to be. Um, so they can do the budget, and then after they're done with the budget, then they can bring this up for the the big, big-time debate It's going to be at the end of that. All right, this is the leader of the Purple Caucus. I don't care what Jeremy Miller and Roger Reinhardt say. The real Purple Purple Caucus leader Prince on the way out. This is the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. When we come back, we're talking about legislative deadlines and what's going to die and what's going to live.
Welcome back to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Um, we're here every Sunday, 2 to 3 p.m., your weekly source for left-leaning and highly cynical Minnesota political news and analysis, and we're sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. You want to find out more? You want to listen to podcasts? Go to Left.MN, and you can do that easily. Uh, so this week is kind of getting to the, we're getting toward deadlines, um, time when it's time for either the rubber is going to hit the road or this uh, bill or idea will die. And we've seen a couple of things uh, die this week. The first one is Mark Dayton's sales tax, business-to-business sales tax proposal. That's the least shocking thing that's died also. I yeah, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was dead a while ago, um, but it has been amusing to watch the death, I guess we should say the death throes of the business-to-business sales tax. Um, now the question is, what will happen with other aspects of revenue um, so after spending weeks arguing about middle tax ca- tax increases, the Republicans will now have to shift to try to justify why the wealthiest Minnesotans should not pay a single penny more. It sounds like you're trying to make lemonade out of lemons, Aaron. I am making lemonade, it, and it's delicious <laughs> because, lemonade. Because liberals love the idea of taxes. And so anytime there's less taxes, we cry inside. <laughs> well, I am in favor of people who are the top 2% of Minnesota income earners paying the same percentage of taxes yes. that everyone else pays. Yes. And the tax incident study that came out just this week once again showed that the top 1%, the top 5%, and the top 10% all pay a lower effective state and local tax rate than you and I do. And that hasn't changed in years and anything that might get us closer to that is a good thing. So, uh, well, it's just sort of like I don't know. That's the the rallying cry of the conservatives these days is that you know liberals they just they've never met a tax they didn't like or something like that. You know, and and that's the the fact of the matter is in Minnesota specifically under the eight years of the Plenty administration and then the two years of the Date administration because he was dealing with the Republican legislature there were no rep, no revenue increases at all. We have the lowest effective tax rate in in, in history yeah. right now, both so, in the state and and nationwide. So stop crying about it. Yeah, it, it's not that we liberals love taxes; it's that liberals like balance. I think we like education. <laughs> yes, we like transportation infrastructure. The things that taxes pay for. We like we like we like society to function well. That's what we want. Um, and hopefully, well, we'll see what happens next week when Governor Dayton uh, puts out his supplemental tax, uh, sorry, su- supplemental tax and spending plan, his budget plan, uh, and that comes out next week. What else is dead? Um, well, what's live? Let's talk about what's live for now. Um, the health exchange bill passed. Yes. Um, 37-28 in the Senate, um, which is, a, I think, a straight party line vote. Um, if not, it's real close to it. Um, in the House, I think they only had a couple of Republican votes for it. Uh, Jim Abler from Coon Rapids, uh, angling to be on the conference committee, voted for it. Total of 20 hours of legislative floor debate uh, this week in the House and the Senate combined. Um, and hundreds of amendments. Hundreds. Literally 100 amendments were filed in the Senate. So clearly that rule change has, has stifled uh, opposition ability to amend law. Yeah. And to be fair, the Senate did not pass that rule change. That was only in the House. But even in the House, there were dozens and dozens of amendments. Um, and there's going to be dozens and dozens of more things to consider because now this goes to a conference committee. There is a deadline, though. The deadline is March 31st when the federal government has said that Minnesota must pass a health exchange law or we become part of the federal um, one-size-fits-all health exchange that will be reserved for all those states that decide they didn't want to actually do their own thing. Yeah, and it's it's sort of ironic that you have conservatives who are advocating for not passing a health exchange bill, which would, in effect, uh, cede control 
of our health exchange to the feds, which right. is something conservatives theoretically would be against. And, and also, theoretically, they would be for health exchange because they proposed it. Well, I mean, the, health, the, the Heritage Foundation, this is where it came from. Yes, well, the, you, you can't pierce that cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah, I know, but uh, it, it was like going back to uh, 2008 all over again, 2010, actually, more accurately, uh, watching these floor debates about the health exchange. You've got all these, you know, the same hackneyed arguments about health, and they were like, where in this bill does it guarantee that rates will go down? I'm like, that's called socialism, right? <laughs> I mean, if you tell a private business that they have to charge a certain price in a bill, you'd think you'd have a problem with that. But no, they want that in that bill. Well, but this is the free market solution, right? And isn't the free market always the right answer to everything? Yeah. And then you got... Uh, Except in this case? Uh, Glenn Gruenhagen made a fool of himself on the floor this week. Uh, Through some Glenn Gruenhagen yeah, from Glencoe? Yes. Gah! Uh, <laughs> implying that uh, subsidizing health insurance for poor people would lead to... Uh, primarily African-American families having out-of-wedlock children, I guess, to get health care for them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, and then it was... Stay it, classy, Glenn. Was it... Uh, was it uh, who was it who, who smacked him down on that? Was uh, Tina Liebling. Tina, Tina Liebling, From yes. Rochester. Uh, yeah, she just basically got up there and said, um, nobody gets more welfare when they have kids. Yeah. Our friends of the show, uh, theuptake.org, they have this video up on their website. If you want to check that out, I highly recommend it. Uh, so that's living, and it will probably get through. It'll be a comp, but it won't happen until right at the very last minute. This is a lot of work still does to do. Um, the general deadlines for policy bills. Uh, to get well, the, to, just sorry. go back to that yeah, quickly. The, the deadline on the health exchange, though, isn't a state-imposed deadline. No, it's a federal That's deadline. a federal deadline. So yeah. that, that deadline means something. These deadlines for committee stuff can always be waived if the leadership wants them to be waived. Yeah. So these other deadlines aren't hard deadlines. The deadline on the health exchange is a hard deadline. That's a very good point. Um, the uh, deadlines that, I, uh, that Tony's talking about, uh, the legislative deadlines, um, you can get around them by having the House Rules Committee and the Senate Rules Committee exempt a bill from it. So they're more about perception than anything else. The problem is there are a couple of bills that if they have to go through extraordinary ways to get through, the Republicans will howl about it. The biggest one is the, is the marriage equality bill. You know, so if they have to do a special maneuver to make it legitimate or to make it viable, uh, that will be used as evidence for, you know, oh, backroom dealing, whatever else it is. So it's very important, I think, for them to, to perceptually meet these deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, the deadline is uh, the 15th of March. Has, you have to have a bill that's introduced has to get a favorable committee hearing. They have to be recommended to pass out of the House where they started from by, the, by March 15th. Uh, and then the second deadline is March 22nd, next week. The other house has to give it a favorable committee hearing. Uh, that's not a lot of time. And it's amazing. Uh, this week is going to be crunch time up there at the Capitol because there will be marathon sessions as he try to get as many of these bills through as possible. Is, the, is there a lot of stuff moving through the House uh, Natural Resources Committee? Uh, no, no, not very much at all. In fact, oh, no, no, there hasn't been much movement through there at all this season, this session at all. And the few, I, bill, why is that? The few bills that have passed, uh, uh, there's two bills that passed. One, uh, well, one dealing with uh, muzzleloader scope usage, and uh, Representative David Dill, chair of that committee, says he doesn't want that to move to the floor for fear that someone will try to amend it and put gun control legislation in there. Uh, and there's also a... So he's in favor of the actual bill then? Yeah, he likes the bill. He just doesn't want the risk of it being amended by someone who would have an unfriendly amendment for it. The other one is a bill that would... Um, I don't know if this has gotten a favorable committee hearing in the Natural Resources Committee yet. I think it has. But it would um, would um, limit what they call cone bear traps. Um, these are body gripping traps that are used for 
um, trapping all kinds of mammals. Um, and um, a number of hunting dogs have been trapped in these um, and, and been killed. And so a number of hunting activists have been asking for regulations. Well, uh, Representative Dill says he won't bring that up for a vote either for fear that someone will try to amend it and ban wolf trapping. Because God forbid. Well, yeah. He thinks he's got the votes, but um, he won't. Well, if he had the votes, he wouldn't be so scared to bring it to the floor, That's a fine point, Tony. Um, Whenever you hear somebody say, I've got the votes, but I'm afraid of it, that usually means they don't have the votes. So uh, there's all all kinds of other dead and live stuff we ran out of time to talk about, but you'll have to come back and read more on Left.MN. Watch those deadlines and watch to see what gets through. All right. Next, we're talking to Mark Osler. He is a professor of law at St. Thomas University. He wrote a piece called Guns and Kittens. And we're going to talk about what he meant by kittens. that. Kittens. Welcome back to the Left MN Radio Hour, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. You can find podcasts of this and previous shows. Read more about the stories we talk about and much, much more at left.mn. Now, today we're joined in studio by Mark Osler, professor at uh, St. Thomas University School of Law. He's a former uh, federal prosecutor and a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. In his most recent piece, Guns and Kittens asks the question, are we more threatened by puppies and kittens than we are by guns? Um, as Minnesota grapples with gun control legislation, we're really glad to have him back on the Left Amendment Radio Hour. So thank you for uh, being here today, yes. Professor Osler. It's great to be here. Um, so what's the premise of this most recent key, uh, piece? I mean, I, whenever you talk about kittens on the Internet, everyone goes wild. So it, It's true. Yeah, and I, I didn't have any videos of kittens, and so it was even a harder <laughs> sell. But, but, you know, I moved here a couple years ago, and in, in the town that I live in, Edina, uh, when you move in, they send you the regulations, uh, you know, the municipal ordinances. A and it's thick pretty, booklet. It is a pretty thick booklet. There's a lot of regulations there. And we were flipping through it, and one of the things that really jumped out at me is how many of the regulations had to do with pets, that you can't have more than three in a single home, that if you have a dog, the dog has to be registered. Um, and, and one of my favorite provisions was that if your cat or dog gets out and molests other animals, it can be impounded and destroyed. Um, and it struck me as we were going on with this gun debate that we have – uh, a lot more restrictions in a place like that on our pets than we do on our guns. Um, for example, you know, the, the limit of three cats in a, in a regular home is obviously directed at, you know, what sometimes are called crazy cat ladies, <laughs> that you don't want to, you know, have people with, with 27 cats in their house. Or 87 cats 87. or more than that. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, where I was from in Texas, outside of Waco, there was a, uh, a woman who had, you know, 30-some cats, and they, they took the cats away and they, they bulldozed the house as a public nuisance. Now, you, you hold that up to the way that we treat gun hoarders, um, people who who actually have, you know, a, a huge number of guns, some of which may be illegal um, and, and dangerous in a way that, that the cats and kittens aren't, that we have a more uh, standoff approach to that. And, and that leads to tragedy in specific instances. Um, you know, the, the recent standoff in Alabama that you may recall, where a guy shoots a school bus driver dead, yeah. kidnaps a five-year-old, the backstory on that guy is that he was um, already um, under charge for having shot at his neighbors, but they don't go in and clear out his guns the way we'd go in and clear out uh, the cats if there was a concern for the pets. Wow. Um, and and as, as we look at the Heller decision and his progeny, um, which is the, the Supreme Court case that really granted for the first time after 200 years um, a 
Second Amendment individual right to possess firearms, that, that, you know, the Supreme Court acknowledged that there can be reasonable regulation. And my point is simply that that reasonable regulation should um, at least be as restrictive as what we have on, on kittens and puppies. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the, the Heller decision. So this is one that you hear uh, folks who are in favor of gun rights and against regulation cite an awful lot. And the argument is that the D.C. versus Heller case, uh, the District of Columbia had pretty restrictive handgun regulations. I believe actually it was illegal to own a handgun in the District of Columbia. And uh, I forget the name of the, 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 the uh, defendant in this case, but Heller, Heller. Argued, yeah, argued that he had a constitutional and individual right uh, to possess firearms, specifically a handgun. Um, how, yeah. did, how did that change the, the jurisprudence around guns? I mean, had the Supreme Court taken on this question before about what it meant in the Second Amendment when it said a well-regulated militia Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, not directly. And that's one of the things that's fascinating about it is, I mean, how did we go 200 years without really having that, that construed in a straightforward way? Is that an individual right or is it within the framework of if you're part of a militia? Um, and, and in that case, they, you know, the, the plaintiffs and the, the people that wanted to promote uh, gun rights chose, chose a good plaintiff. Um, you know, it's a guy who was a security guard in the Third Good Marshall building. Mm-hmm. Um, where, for other, among other organizations, the Sentencing Commission <laughs> is, resides. I've testified in that building. And um, his his point was that he wanted to have a gun in his home, a handgun. Um, and, you know, they are they were pretty much banned at that time. Uh, they had to be licensed, and almost nobody could obtain a license to, to have one in your home, including this man, uh, Mr. Heller. And there were really, and this gets lost when it's discussed, there were two provisions that were struck down um, in the D.C. Code, effectively. And one was that they were challenged. One was that he couldn't have a handgun at home. The Supreme Court said there is an individual Second Amendment right that is not just couched in terms of, uh, you know, you're part of a militia or, or the military. Um, and so that, you know, and a handgun was the type of gun that a person should be allowed to possess. It was unreasonable to restrict it that way. But the other thing is that the District of Columbia also had a provision that said, that if you had a gun in your home, you had to have a trigger lock on it. And the Supreme Court struck that down as well, um, yeah, which, right. which yeah. is really, if you think about it, um, probably more troubling. That uh, Now, at the same time, they said there can be reasonable regulations on, on firearms. But um, a trigger lock was not considered a reasonable regulation. Of yeah, and, and the reasoning in the opinion is uh, Justice Scalia wrote the, opi- the majority opinion, and, and what was expressed there was, if you have a handgun in your home, what you want to do is react to someone breaking in. And if there's a trigger guard that has to be on that, that's going to inhibit you unreasonably from using it for that intended purpose. Huh. So, so if uh, the state of Minnesota were, for example, to pass a law that said that you can't store a loaded handgun, that it has to be unloaded, uh, would, I mean, would that have been a reasonable restriction? I mean, because it, it obviously it takes time to load the weapon in order to use it. Um, Yes, yeah. because because we've had all these cases in Minnesota where uh, children have found handguns, particularly um, in their parents' bedroom. Uh, the case I forget the name of the the child that was shot in South in, in South Minneapolis uh, when they found they were playing in their parents' bedroom and they found a handgun um, without a trigger lock and with and, and loaded behind their parents' pillow and uh, ended up shooting his two year old brother by accident. Yeah, and it happens time and time yeah. again. In if that was, uh, in, you know, to my mind, certainly that would be a reasonable regulation, that you can't keep a loaded handgun in your home. That's something that, frankly, the Supreme would probably end up in front of the Supreme Court. And I don't doubt that there are additional regulations because they left 
as the Supreme Court often does, a lot of questions open. Yeah. What is a reasonable regulation? Is it is it that you can't store a loaded gun that's not secured in your home? Um, or is that like a trigger lock? That's That's, frankly, an open question right now. Yeah. You're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And this hour we're talking with Professor Mark Osler from St. Thomas Law uh, about gun control and kittens. Um, well, we've gotten past the kitten part already. Hopefully, maybe we'll come back to kittens later. Kitten control. Uh, kitten control. Uh, so how did that Heller decision really change the direction of, of the political discourse on gun laws? Because I think it's not just a question of legality, but also you hear a lot of folks using the Heller decision to justify a, a pretty extreme political position, which is that no law that would restrict gun rights uh, could possibly pass constitutional muster. We have folks here in Minnesota who've argued that um, imposing a $50 fee to background check a private sale is the equivalent of a poll tax because it is a, a cost on exercising a constitutional right. Um, so what do you think has changed with the political discourse after the Heller decision? Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's been a lot of overstatement about what it means, obviously, that, um, you know, no right is absolute. Um, there is the, our constitutional rights limit the government in terms of how they can limit our freedoms, uh, that in many of which are inherent um, in what we what we can do. But the thing is that none of those are unrestricted. None of them are absolute. And there's always going to be restrictions on some of them, even the right to free speech, the freedom of religion. Uh, there are effective limits that can be placed on that. The, the question is where that line lies. Right now, people are saying that any regulation on on handguns is a violation of the Second Amendment. Um, you know, that that would put the Second Amendment above all the other amendments, all the other provisions. And, and, and we're not there. And the Supreme Court wasn't there in Heller. That's not reasonably what we're going to be looking at. Instead, what we're going to be looking at is several years, maybe a couple decades of working out what regulations are reasonable um, that are going to allow people to actually affect the right to bear arms that's now a constitutional right that resides in the individual um, while protecting public safety. And we'll find that balance the way we have in so many other things. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the recent political interest, of course, comes from the spectacular nature of some of these mass shootings Um, in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, the shooting of Gabby Giffords in in Arizona. Uh, But all that has led us to restrictions on things like assault weapons or talking about restricting high-capacity magazines, which... You know, in the grand scheme of gun violence, sir, there there are drops in the bucket. I mean, the real the real issue is, you know, 95 percent of gun violence in this country is probably handguns, not long guns. Um, has the Heller de- I mean, the Heller decision basically said that handguns are regular weapons, and you can't. You know, there's a different standard that you apply to things that are in customary use versus those that are different kinds of weapons. Um, have we just given up on the idea that regulating handguns is even possible anymore? Well, I, I think that Heller settled the issue of banning handguns yeah. is, is not going to be seen as a reasonable regulation or a constitutional regulation on that Second Amendment right. So, so that's off the boards now. You know, there are cities like Chicago or, or um, D.C. that effectively did ban handguns, and that's not something you can do. Um, you know, things like high-capacity magazines, assault rifles, um, that probably – there are ways that that can work, and there's some places that that, that will be tried. You're exactly right, though. In terms of the number of deaths, uh, it's it's really a small fraction. Um, the people that are killed with assault rifles in that way, and in these kind of spectacular mass murders that are are, are heart wrenching and and horrible. Um, the truth is that 
that a lot of the murders that are done with handguns um, in this nation, they're people who are shooting family members. Yeah. You know, there's a gun in the house. Or shooting themselves. Or shooting themselves. And, and the, the um, rate of suicide by, by firearms is, is, is alarming. And, you know, people say, well, if someone wants to kill themselves, they'll find a way to do that. And the, the, the problem with that, that rationale is that um, people who are trying to kill themselves are often preambulant about that. And it's going to change from one day to the next. And if it's easier, it's more likely to happen before they get professional help or um, some kind of intermediation that they really need. Um, and so th- those questions, I mean, I, I kind of agree with the critics in a way when they say, well, you know, if you were to ban assault rifles, it wouldn't make that much of a difference in the number of deaths. That's true. But you know what? If that's my kid who's in a school who is shot dead after the guy uh, continues to shoot because he didn't have to reload, that's right. going to be a big deal. And there's so many things in this country that we do and we accept regulations and restrictions because it might save a handful of lives because life matters yeah. in this nation. And I also, you know, I think it's interesting that you, you if you talk to people who have are, are, are in a reasonable mind frame and want to talk about it, almost everyone agrees that things like preventing guns from getting in the hands of mentally ill folks is a good thing. Yeah, like um, Adam Lanza. Yeah, exactly. And in that case, you know, uh, but we also have this kind of ongoing debate about whether or not it's possible to restrict those weapons. And here in Minnesota, we're we're currently trying to figure out whether or not it's pos- politically possible to pass a whole bunch of uh, gun laws. Yeah, and what's going to be most effective? I mean, this is something I, I think there's a way uh, in which the Heller decision has propelled a healthy and worthwhile debate. Um, you know, before Heller, there wasn't a lot of discussion about what will work best at making people make reasonable decisions about guns. And now we are having that discussion. I think Newtown, unfortunately, uh, propelled it as well. Um, it's not unfortunate that it's propelling the discussion, but that it happened at all. Uh, so that's where we're headed. Yeah, and this discussion's an important one. We're going to pick it up when we get back. We're talking with Professor Mark Osler from St. Thomas Law School about gun control, regulation, and the Heller decision. And we'll be back on the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, just after this break. This is the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. And this hour, we're joined by Professor Mark Osler, a professor of law at St. Thomas University. We're talking about gun control, among other things. And I actually, you know, I, I love a lot. Of, I love the posts you've got on Huffington Post. I think they 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 provide some unique perspective. Um, and there's and I kind of want to get at two of the aspects of those perspe- of that perspective you provide, um, besides your legal expertise. Um, but also, I, I think you did a you wrote a post last year that really resonated with me as I was thinking about this gun issue, and it, you titled it "The Five Sins of Progressive Activists." And some of those sins were confusing expression with advocacy. Uh, not respecting the principles of the other side, failure to focus on outcomes, and expecting capitulation. And and those four of the, four of the five sins, I think, are things that sometimes folks who are arguing for gun control are guilty of. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Oh, absolutely. And, I, you know, expecting capitulation is one of them. The, yeah. <clears throat> it's it's always surprising to me when I uh, hear, hear people on either side uh, who – don't have reasonable expectations. I'll, I'll talk about the extremes. For example, um, there's there are people who agree with me about the, the some of the dangers of 
uh, of guns being out there the way that they are, who will say, well, we need to reverse Heller. We need to go back and refight that and tie this to it being about a militia. And, and that's, that's frankly not a reasonable expectation. That's, you know, that's not going to reverse and go back there. And the hell decision needs to be accepted and go forward. It's like the reverse row people mm-hmm. on, on abortion. I mean, right. it's certainly possible to have a conversation about abortion, uh, but the idea that Roe versus Wade is going to be reversed and now everything is going to go back to the way things were. Yeah. Not going to happen. Same yeah. thing with Heller. And, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, too, you have people who, uh, are absolutist about the Second Amendment, especially post-Heller, who are saying it means that there can be, um, you know, no regulations on, on my guns. And unfortunately, these two groups tend to speak only to one another, which means that they reinforce their misconceptions. The people who agree that Heller should be struck down, um, convince themselves that that's possible. And the people who are on the other end who, who are convinced that Second Amendment rights are absolute, uh, you know, they believe that in part because they talk to people and listen to, to shows and watch shows where people profess that and they and agree with them. And so we have these closed loops of discussion, whereas really what's going to happen is that there's going to be discussion over time in the middle about these reasonable regulations. You know, is a high-capacity magazine something that's protected by Heller or not? Is it something that there's some reason to have it that uh, that would make sense, or is it something that's more dangerous so we're willing to prohibit it? And that's that's where that dis- that discussion needs to go forward. And right now, it's, it's sad because the polarization um, prevents either side from engaging at that level where things are really going to get resolved. Um, and what does that mean? You know, too often what that means is that those decisions at the ground level are made by bureaucrats. And frankly, I find that neither people on the right or the left um, who believe passionately in something um, <laughs> think that that's where things should be decided. Right. They would rather it be decided on an engagement. You know, it's interesting. You just mentioned abortion. And I, uh, three weeks ago, spoke at a conference in, uh, at Stanford on abortion. <laughs> And um, my my point, um, which is uh, you know not uh, not on the left, um, right. is was was that there's a problem with abortions past the point of viability in the United States, um, and you know that's an example. There's an area where, regardless of whether you're you're pro-choice or pro-life, there's an active question there that you know this is something where there's an alternative to an abortion that would allow. Uh, the person to be free of the pregnancy and the baby to live, which is to give premature birth. How do you discuss that? There's something productive to that discussion. But instead, people march on the street saying, you know, every abortion is, is taking a life, or on the other hand, that, that any restrictions on abortion are, um, are going to be hostile to women necessarily. Um, but the truth is that it's, in, it's those questions in the middle where American law and principles really get defined. Yeah. We're, we're talking to Professor Mark Osler from St. Thomas Law School about uh, gun control and other issues. Um, you know, and your Christian faith really figures prominently in a lot of your writing. And uh, and I, I really liked one quote that it was in another one of your Huffington Post pieces about uh, the civil discourse is not just a civic duty. Uh, for those of us who follow Christ, it's a Christian duty. And, you know, you're talking about this discussion that needs to happen in the middle uh, this idea of civic and civil discourse is something that everybody says they want, uh, but we have a really difficult time getting it. And we have these voices that um, honestly have been rewarded for taking extreme positions, no compromise in defense of whatever the cause is. Um, how are we going to get back to a, a situation where people recognize the need for 
and really value civic discourse. Yeah, I, I think that the, the key to that is to have discussions in places where people are starting out with something in common, even though they disagree about some of these things. Um, you know, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we know where that's not. <laughs> it's not on television. Yeah. <laughs> and, and too often it's not on radio. But, you know, a lot of times it is in church. Um, one of the projects that, that I have is I'm very much against the death penalty and um, have a project where we, we go to churches, largely very conservative churches and, and schools, um, Fuller Seminary, Regent University in Virginia Beach, and, and we put on a, a trial of Jesus to push together people's ideas about the death penalty and, the, and their faith, which has as its center an unjust execution um, yeah. of an innocent. And and when you do that, when you have a safe place where there's this area of overlap where we, we have these principles that are in common, we both believe that the Gospels mean something when we're in that place. And maybe, therefore, the death penalty, I'm against it. But we're both going to change as we have that interaction um, in from that shared set of principles. And one of the things I, I've said in a number of these articles is that if you want to be an effective advocate, that's what you have to look for is what is it in the other side that I can respect? Um, that I really can look to and walk over there and look at it from that point of view. Because you're much more effective as an advocate arguing from the shared principles than you are from standing your ground and, and lobbying bombs at the other side. Yeah, and, and another thing that you wrote that I really resonated with me was this, the, the idea that what you want to see from an audience that doesn't necessarily agree with you is them walking away feeling troubled, mm-hmm. right? The idea yeah. that there's something on their mind that they have to work through yeah, and are, I mean, what, what's the what's how does that apply to the gun control debate? Can we find a way to like get people on uh, perhaps on both sides to to walk away saying there's something on my mind that I have to work through? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I and I think it does have to come from that engagement. For example, um, you know, a lot of people who uh, you know, I lived for ten years in Waco, Texas, up until two years ago. A lot of people have guns there; they're comfortable with guns. I, you know, my background's in law enforcement; I'm comfortable with guns. Um, but a lot of people that that really believed in, in guns, gun rights and expanding gun rights, um, they view it as a part of public safety. Now, there's something that I agree with them. I'm for public safety. They're for public safety. Uh, and it that's, that's a fair ground to start from. Um, now, there's another group as well that'll say, well, really what having guns for, and especially assault rifles and things, is to resist our government if it's necessary. That's another question. But that's a tough time finding common ground there. Yeah, yeah. But, you know... What's interesting is those people very often are history buffs. And if I want to trouble them, I will go there. And I'll say, you know, George Washington. Uh, George Washington, when he put down the Whiskey Rebellion, the people with the guns were the people that, uh, you know, were out in western Pennsylvania that they were marching against, and that was the militia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this is a great conversation, and we'll have to leave it there. Uh, All Professor right. Mark Osler from St. Thomas University Law School has been our guest this week on the Left MN Radio Hour. We're here every Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m. Thanks again. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Again.